Cards Murray here. Welcome to First Up. It is Ra Pare. That's Thursday, the 11th of August. Call Nathan Ho. Coming up, Australian health officials believe the worst of the COVID wave is over. You're going to hear why 9 out of 10 employers would love to pay their staff more. Yeah, I know. Uh, the launch of a first-of-its-kind trade course in Te Reo Māori. Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson talks to us about Labour's candidate selection process and his recent European tour. And save the whitebait. Doc shortens the whitebait season to protect threatened species. Whitebait face a range of threats and pressures. Loss of habitat, poor water quality, barriers to the upstream migration, as well as fishing pressure. Maria, welcome to First Up. Nathan Rarere, aho, nice to be back with you. We begin in the post-Commonwealth Games UK this morning where the cost of living crisis is the lead story there. I'm joined uh, from London by our old mate Henry Riley. Morena, Henry. Hello, yes, good evening from the UK. Okay, so now, inflation. It's a good word, we've heard it around plenty. I see it's forecast to rise to 13% by December there in the UK. I think energy sector being blamed for this one. What's been done to solve this, Henry? Yeah, well, the whole issue of inflation has been dominating the news agenda. I know the cost of living is sort of a global problem, but the issue of inflation itself has been sort of rumbling on here in the UK. I remember right at the start of the year, people saying, oh, inflation could hit really high. You know, it could get as high as sort of 7%. And everyone was going, that's crazy. No way. You know, then we're saying, oh, it could hit double digits. Now it looks like it's going to hit 13%. And this is really starting to have a negative impact on families and on regular people and particularly coupled with this cost of living crisis. Now, energy costs, as you say, being heavily blamed for this. And one of the main problems is we have this sort of interim government, Nathan. Now, of course, you know, they've been in power, the Conservative Party, one way or another for 12 years. But ever since we had those mass resignations from the governments, I think it was uh, over 50 in total, over 60, in fact, Um, you know, we had this sort of interim government where people have just sort of been plonked into various positions for a couple of months uh, while Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss battle it out. And now we're quickly realising that actually, you know, this is a very serious crisis that can't really wait until September the 5th. The reason I use that date is that's the date we'll have the next leader of the Conservative Party and the next Prime Minister announced. And we had a Chancellor, Nadeem Zahawi, he's only going to be in the post really for a couple of months you wouldn't imagine he'd stay in the role he's been on holiday the prime minister's been on holiday they're more than entitled to have a holiday i suppose because you know they've they've you know been working long hours but you know they're only in government for another few months so one wonders why now is the time to have the holiday um anyway nadim zahawi who who was abroad we don't know where said he was sort of taking calls he's now come back to the uk he's going to meet energy bosses we understand those talks have happened today they're angry at the energy companies because one thing we're seeing is Energy prices have undoubtedly gone up because we have various factors, including the war in Ukraine, including inflation, which is really pushing the price up uh, of, of, of regular people's energy. But the problem is people have no sympathy because they look at the profits of Shell, of BP, of British Gas and, you know, in particular Centrica, which is the parent company. And, you know, for instance, we had Eon results today. Eon's one of our biggest energy companies, £3.5 billion. Uh, Centrica in the high billions as well. And people are really starting to lose faith in this idea of, of profits that the companies are making and wanting to see them helped out rather than the big companies. Oh, absolutely. I can fully understand that as well. We'll get to that uh, leadership um, uh, race soon, but th- I see that actually being energy might get used a lot, a lot of aircon this weekend. You've got another heat wave on the way. 
Yeah, it starts from midnight tonight. We've got a four-day amber extreme heat warning. What does that mean? Well, two things in particular. Firstly, it means there's a warning to health. So actually, if you have underlying health conditions and if you're of a certain age, you are advised to be extra cautious, you know, all the regular things as well for regular folk in terms of keeping a cool temperature. And also an impact on travel. We have a real problem in this country when it gets too hot. And we saw this, you know, what was it? Only a few weeks ago we were speaking and temperatures hit the highest ever in the UK, 40.3 Celsius in one particular town in Lincolnshire. We're now expecting them to reach up to 35 degrees, but but travel is another another area that's disrupted. We see rail lines that aren't built, quite frankly. The Transport Secretary admitted this a few weeks ago. They're not built for extreme, you know, temperatures like this. And so the trains simply cannot function or they cannot any, go anywhere near as quick. That then leads to a backlog of travel and, you know, various, you know, even little things like tarmac. It, we use a different type of tarmac because we're not used to these extreme, you know, this extreme weather like, for instance, in the south of France or in southern Italy or various places like that. And so you've seen bits of tarmac sort of melting as well. And it just sort of highlights this infrastructure problem uh, in the UK. But we have this extreme health warning. How hot uh, a heat warning, I should say, which does impact health. How hot is it going to be? We're expecting sort of 34, 35 ish in various places, which, again, is extremely hot. And uh, and, you know, we, we sort of go away when we want a bit of heat in the UK. We like moaning about the weather and moaning about the rain. So let's have more of that, please. So we can uh, so we can get back to moaning. Get out the giant hankies this week to tie the knots in the corners of, I tell you. Hey, um, <laughs> let's talk about that Conservative Party leader race. So I, I understand someone has jumped ship from the HMS Rishi Sunak. Who's that? That's right. And it's still going on uh, for all of you who've uh, tuned out. It's still going on. We have six more hustings to go. Um, and I, I think I can just about cling on for them. Uh, this is a man called Chris Skidmore. He is quite a prominent minister, considered to be very loyal, considered to be actually one of the more sensible ministers uh, uh, who was in government. He was a minister under Boris Johnson. He was a minister under Theresa May. And he's chair of quite an influential group of Conservative MPs called the Net Zero Group, which does, as it says on the tin, they want to make sure that the Conservative Party is environmental, has strong environmental credentials and gets to net zero. He's called for there to be an environment minister. That role was sort of rolled into the role of business secretary. So it doesn't seem like the most ludicrous suggestion in the world to ask for the UK to have its own uh, uh, environment secretary. Um, but he's jumped ship from Team Sunak to Liz Truss. And, you know, you, understandably, Team Sunak are particularly frustrated about this. We saw it rumoured uh, in the last few days that we could could see members of Rishi Sunak's campaign jump to Liz Truss. The reasons they're giving is because they say Liz Truss has impressed them. We all know it's because they want a job when she inevitably becomes prime minister. She's going to win. She has a 34-point lead. And so various smart MPs like Chris Skidmore, who probably didn't back her and perhaps, dare I say, maybe don't uh, support her that much, are jumping ship in the hope that they could perhaps get a job in the future. He's not the, well, he is the first, but I don't think he'll be the last, I have to say, Nathan. No, thank you very much. Henry Riley uh, with the news out of the UK. Let's go to mainland Europe there. A string of explosions at a Russian airbase in Crimea has killed at least one person, prompting speculation that Ukraine is making inroads into Russian-held territory. Back from Karate summer camp in Iceland... Yep, is our Europe correspondent, Dr. Anita Purcell-Sherland. Kia ora, how are you? Kia ora, good evening. Fine, thank you. Hey, so tell me about this. UK's president has just addressed his nation. Did he mention those explosions? Well, in his nightly address, President Zelensky didn't discuss who was behind the attacks on the Saki base in Crimea, but he vowed to liberate Russian the Russian-occupied region. He said the war in Ukraine began with Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014, and that Crimea is Ukrainian and that Ukraine will never give it up. 
Russia's defense ministry said the um, ammunition detonated at the base while Ukraine has not claimed explicit responsibility for the attack. Now, an advisor to President Zelensky said the series of explosions could have been the work of partisan saboteurs. However, Ukraine's general staff of armed forces said on Wednesday that it destroyed nine Russian planes within the last 24 hours, but it didn't specify the locations. In a separate development, Ukrainian officials say 13 people were killed in uh, were killed overnight um, in overnight Russian strikes in the central Dnipropetrovsk region and another one in the Zaporizhia region in the south of the country. Well, let's hope for an end to that soon. Um, dozens of mig- uh, boat migrants have been reported missing in the Aegean Sea. Has there, there been a rescue? Well, Greece's Coast Guard rescued 29 migrants on Wednesday after the boat sunk, but it reports that dozens are still missing. Now, according to the Coast Guard service, the rescued migrants, mostly Afghan, Iranians and Iraqis, said their boat had set out from Antalya, Turkey, heading towards Italy with 60 to 80 people aboard. The boat capsized and sunk off the island of Kapathos in the southern Aegean, and the search and rescue operation began in the early morning hours of Wednesday amid some very strong winds. There's also been protests in Germany too after the police killing of an African refugee. Can you tell us more? Well, in Dortmund, um, over 200 demonstrators protested against police violence after a 16-year-old youth was fatally shot by an officer's submachine gun. Now, state prosecutors say the young man was an unaccompanied refugee minor from Senegal, and he was shot after police attended a call for assistance by a youth welfare facility, which reported that the young man had a knife. Eleven policemen arrived at the scene, and according to the initial police account, officers first used stun guns and tear gas to try to disarm the youth as he attacked before one 29-year-old officer fired shots. The 16-year-old was hit five times, and police say the young man was suicidal. Mm, that's a tragic end to a life there. Um, let's talk about the, the whale that was cruising the Sen River, also um, coming to an unfortunate end. What, what happened there? Well, a four-metre beluga whale had to be put down. Overnight, rescuers spent nearly six hours lifting the 800-kilogram whale from the river using a crane and nets. Now, the whale was trapped more than 100 kilometres inland and strayed so far south away from its natural habitat. Rescuers planned to release the animal in the sea, but its health deteriorated after failing to eat. The decision to euthanise the whale was made as it wasn't getting enough air and was suffering. Mm. An interesting story here out of Switzerland. So a melting glacier has revealed plane wreckage from the 1960s. Yeah, basically, um, you know, over the last, well, since, actually since April or since August, I should say, that... um, the trekkers have made a number of um, gruesome discoveries. Human remains from the 70s or 80s were found along the Chessian Glacier in the southern canton of Alay, and another discovery was found in the northwest of the Matterhorn. Also, the wreckage of a plane that crashed over the Altash Glacier in June 1968 was also discovered. Now, police in the Alpine region maintain a list of about 300 cases of people who've gone missing since 1925. So you can think of it as kind of like the Mount Everest of Europe. All oh, these bodies yes. are being uncovered. I was thinking about Mount, Mount Everest. Was it Green Boots, the, the one they often talk about there? Um, Dr. Anita Purcell-Sherlin, thank you very much for your time.
Uh, well, that's really interesting. We'll go to Australia now and some good news on the COVID front. I know. Officials there think that the worst of the 2022 COVID wave is over with cases falling across the country. Some infectious disease experts say any future outbreaks will be less severe thanks to high levels of vaccinations and natural immunity. The ABC's John Daly reports. On several measurements, Australia appears to be on the way down from the peak of the current wave of Omicron BA5. But getting over this winter peak has come at a tragic cost. More than 2,000 people lost their lives to the virus in the last month. James Wood is a leading infectious disease modeller for the New South Wales and federal governments. And he says the worst is over. I think, yes. I'm expecting, you know, cases to sort of halve within the next month and potentially they might go down even more quickly than that as we come out of winter. Was this the deadliest wave we've had so far in Australia? I think it's going to come out about the same as the as the Omicron wave over December, January. This last wave saw Australia's COVID death toll pass 10,000. The tragic milestone came with one of the worst death rates per 1 million people in the developed world, surpassed only by New Zealand and Norway. Former Federal Deputy Chief Medical Officer and ANU Infectious Disease Physician Nick Coatesworth says that's because Australia has kept the virus at bay for so long. Those nations had very severe and widespread first waves. We kept it out. But unfortunately, what that meant was our susceptible population, which was elderly Australians, were not exposed to the virus at those points. So our death rates stayed down. When Omicron BA5 moved through the community, those individuals who were susceptible, sadly, uh, many of them lost their lives. And we found those rates uh, much higher than other parts of the world. Some infectious disease experts are increasingly confident the next waves of Omicron will be milder and less deadly. James Wood says that's because of high vaccination and now natural herd immunity. Five or six months out, it looks like your protection against being at least a case that gets reported is, is, is around 80%. Early June, we had evidence that half the adult population in Australia had been infected, and that's probably now 70 to 80%. So infection basically spreads amongst people who can catch it. So if we keep seeing things branch off Omicron that are a little bit different but not too different, that's what we can expect to see. The The wild card is what's the chance we see something completely different like the jump from Delta to Omicron. Deakin University epidemiologist Catherine Bennett says that risk of a radically different variant is perhaps lower because of falling infection rates internationally. Well, if we come off the current waves and the overall infection rates across the world start to decline, then that does lower the risk that we'll see another subvariant. Without another variant on the horizon, hopefully we'll get some reprieve and our health system can recover. But hard to predict what we're going to see in the future. But at this stage, it looks more promising that we are transitioning now to having a hybrid immunity. While Australia learns to live with COVID, Nick Coatesworth says there's still conflicting views about the ongoing role of public health measures like mask mandates. We're going to be uh, exposed to the COVID-19 virus for the rest of our lives. I think there's two schools of thought with regard to non-pharmaceutical interventions. There's the the school that just believes that they work and that we should implement them, and and that's best exemplified by the Burnett Institute. And then there's another school of thought, which is now is the time in the pandemic where we should be testing these things rigorously with good studies so we can work out what's going to happen in the future. Now's a time in the pandemic where it's safe to answer the questions that we need to answer for future preparedness, the role of masks, the role of ventilation, how much of an effect each of those things has.
That's Australia's former Deputy Chief Medical Officer Nick Coatesworth ending that report from the ABC's John Daly. It's 20 past five, I'm Nathan Rarere and you are listening to First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson on the Com Games, uh, UK Diplomacy and the Uffindel fiasco and we'll take you through Doc's decision to shorten the whitebait season. A Canterbury Polytech is about to launch what it's calling a first-of-its-kind trades course in Te Reo Māori. The project was triggered by a former Kūrakaupapa student who raised concerns about English-based assessments. Liam Brown reports. It's the first for a non-Māori tertiary institute in Aotearoa. Ara Institute of Canterbury are providing all the materials needed to make the soon-to-be Reo Māori automotive engineering course a reality. It includes workbooks, marking guides, model answers and assessments, all translated by Reimana Tutingaihe. It's not um, so straightforward as being just a couple of handouts and so on. It's an entire programme. But how do you create an automotive engineering course in Te Reo Māori? Take a term like carburetor. Other languages may use a transliteration, like how a motor car is a motoka. Or it could be a case of inventing a new word entirely based on other words, descriptors, or matauranga. But the new word would have to go through the Māori Language Commission. Transliterations largely depend on a person's understanding of the base language. In the creating of new terms, that was something that was really appealing to me, but it had a had a few drawbacks. And the biggest drawbacks were that if we created terms, the terms would only exist in the documents that are provided here at Ara. Mr Tutingaihe says the easiest option is just to stick to real Pākehā terms. So carburetor remains carburetor. When learners complete their course of study here, they are essentially going into a work environment that doesn't understand any of those terms that we would have created or would have transliterated. They would have been using uh, all of the English terms. The Institute of Tetiriti Partnerships, Temarino Lenehan, says there is a greater need for vocational education in Te Reo Māori. While there is wānanga and university courses in Te Reo Māori, there is little at the polytechnic end of things. Practical courses like automotive engineering are being designed. The need for greater provision of vocational education in Te Reo is, is increasing. And it's increasing because the number of graduates of our kurakaupapa system and our Māori medium schools uh, is increasing too. We're getting more and more learners who uh, have been brought up in Te Reo. You know, we're getting increasingly more enrolments of kids who have been through the, the Māori medium schools. Te Marino Lenehan's hope is that this course will be successful and spread to other courses. It is the start of a big push to embed more kaupapa and maturanga Māori into study. The success of our learners has increased when our culture is part and parcel of the learning journey. And this is just uh, another step in the same journey. Mr Lenahan hopes it will flow both within Ara and into other non-Māori tertiary providers. It is a domino effect. If we can show success in, in this space, then our other colleagues will look to it. The Institute hopes to launch the fully translated course early next year.
Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is the day of our life we like to call the 11th of August. It's, it's quite a, uh, as far as the celebrity birthday realm goes, it's quite a, uh, a birthday day for manly men. What about these hunks? Chris Hemsworth, beautiful Chris Hemsworth, four. I think he was, was he one of the soap operas? 39 years old today, Chris Hemsworth. Uh, Joe Rogan is 55 years old today. He's a podcaster nowadays, but he was the openweight taekwondo champion of the United States, which was why he was quite cocky. Uh, and Hulk Hogan, otherwise known as Terry Belia, he turned 69 today. You know, he was the most recognised celebrity uh, in the 1990s and they did a survey where they went around planet Earth and they showed pictures of famous people and Hulk Hogan was the one that everyone on planet Earth went, that's Hulk Hogan. He was more recognised than Jesus. Yeah. Uh, in New Zealand history, the Picton Ferry Aramoana uh, entered service, but it was 1962, so people went, oh, it's Aramoana uh, over there. And um, a couple of people that are gone from us now, but boy, they left a big mark. Frederick Ludwig Jan, <clears throat> he was born on this day in 1778. He's the man who invented gymnastics. was teaching it at a gym in Berlin, and it quickly spread. He introduced the balance beam, the horizontal bar, the parallel bars, and the vaulting horse to gymnastics. There you are, Friedrich Jan. And Frank Epperson was born on this day in 1894. One night he accidentally left a glass of soda with a mixing stick on his windowsill overnight. It froze, and he created the Epsicle. And one of his mates went, no one will eat that. Call it a popsicle. And he went, it's I've created a popsicle. And that's what he did. So uh, there you are, famous inventors and gorgeous people and a fairy. That's what happened on the 11th of August. Joining us now from the business team is Ananzaki. Kia ora Anan, how are you? Kia ora, very well, welcome back. Thank you very much, sir. I was um, just getting through those, but I understand I was I was alerted to a pizza story, which is always quite big. But I believe that Domino's is pulling out uh, of a market. Where where are they pulling out of? Well, it is some would call it, and rightly so, the birthplace of pizza, Italy. Um, Why were they in Italy know, in the first place? I, I know, right. <laughs> Well, I mean, this would have been the this would have been the ultimate uh, this would have been the ultimate success story if it worked. Um, yeah, but not meant to be, I guess. Uh, and and you know what? Good on them for trying, I'd say. Uh, so Bloomberg is reporting that Domino's Pizza is uh, closing its doors after the franchise holder in Italy uh, filed for bankruptcy. Uh, they, <laughs> sorry, where, where's that uh, Michael Scott? Uh, Clip from the office that we when he need. goes to New York and there's the pizza. That's the greatest yeah. little pizza joint uh, I know. Uh, look, so they opened in 2015, but um, they've struggled to win over customers. They brought in a a US style menu and delivery uh, with toppings like pineapple. A red flag for me right there. Mm. Um, and look, the franchise operators they're called E Pizza, and they're blaming COVID and other restrictions uh, associated with it. But they're also saying. Perhaps unsurprisingly, competition. Uh, as traditional restaurants, uh, they also started using delivery apps because of COVID. And, you know, they really didn't get going in Italy. They had uh, 23 stores across the country. Compare that to the more than 100 here in New Zealand. Um, and they're the world's biggest pizza chain, more than 18,000 stores worldwide. 
And the news of Domino's leaving Italy has been celebrated across social media. Someone saying uh, opening Domino's in Italy is like to is like trying to sell snow in the North Pole. I'm, I've just Googled Pizza Hut Rome, uh, and I can't find one, so it doesn't seem like they've been uh, brave enough to, to have a go at that. that um, I, I've got a friend whose wife is Italian, and she was explaining to me pizzas, and she made this pizza, and it was amazing, very thin crust, a little bit of that. And she said, sorry, I'm going to do a really bad accent here. And she goes, because the ones you get from the shops like Domino's are a cheese palace, and it's terrible. <laughs> so she was like, a cheese palace. And I just remember cheese palace being it. That's great. Hey, give me a, a bit of news here, though. Let's um, come to New Zealand. That's amazing they even went there in the first place. Amazing. Um, a New Zealand growth fund supporting women in business has found a global expansion partner. That's exciting. Is it Domino's? <laughs> Uh, well, they, they certainly would be looking for a, a growth fund uh, at the moment. Uh, look, a great opportunity for women entrepreneurs, uh, Even Capital. Uh, it's a female-funded founded, and female-focused growth fund. They'll work with a London-based 2X Collaborator, which is a global industry body that brings together investors uh, with a female focus. Um, Even Capital's already invested more than $7 million uh, since establishing last year. And 2X Collaborative, they're a big outfit. They've raised uh, 11.4 billion US dollars since its launch at the G7 Summit in 2018. So not a bad place uh, or not a bad uh, partner to uh, be funding alongside with. No, I think that's fantastic. Hey, thank you very much, Anna. And you can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. Our feedback number is 2101. Domino's in Italy... When you travelled the world, remember in the before time when we could travel, were there things that you saw and went, why, why is that here? Why is that here in this country? Uh, let us know, 2101. Did you see these? Or are there even things around New Zealand that you go past and go, why, why is that here? Because I remember there was... Um, I think Starbucks opened on Ponsby Road in Auckland and they tried to, yeah, they tried to be Starbucks on Ponsby Road and closed. And then I remember they got really mad. They're going, coffee snobs. Yeah. That's because that's sponsored to be right. That's that's been their way for ages. Let's go to your money market now. And your New Zealand dollar is currently at sixty four point one one US cents, ninety point three six Australian cents, sixty one point nine seven Euro cents, fifty two point three five British pence, four point three yuan for uh, four point three oh yuan. Sorry, four point three oh Japanese yen. Is that right? I don't think that's right. Uh, and five hundred and seventy. No, it's not right. And two five hundred and seventy point two five Chilean pesos. There, we'll try and get a right figure on that. Uh, a day after the FBI raided his Florida home, a former U.S. President Donald Trump has released a slick video. Some suggest it's the biggest hint yet of his intention to run for president in twenty twenty four. Leading Republican figures have come out in support of their ex-president including his former Vice President Mike Pence, who said the raid was of deep concern. The BBC's Chichi Azundo has the story. Last night, dinner with about a dozen House of Republican members, a show of solidarity from Donald Trump's party. Unprecedented is how this is being described, because no other United States of America president has had their home searched by the FBI. Whilst he wasn't here at Mar-a-Lago and had nothing to say to the cameras, Donald Trump took the time to express exactly how he felt in a lengthy statement, calling the presence of FBI agents in his house a raid, a siege of his home, not necessary or appropriate, and condemned the process as prosecutorial misconduct. 
This is Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump's primary residence and where the FBI executed its search warrant. To my left are Trump supporters who are here to vocalize their support for Donald Trump and his potential to run for president in 2024. The American people are awake. We are not woke. We are awake. We know what's going on. It was a fishing expedition. We have to stand up for our rights and our freedoms because it's they're being eroded. And you know what? What the FBI were looking for, they haven't detailed. But according to Eric Trump, it's related to the removal of official documents from the White House after his father left the office. We are a nation in decline. Never one to miss an opportunity, this news useful for Trump to push his supporters for more donations. This search has continued to fan the flames of division, with the Democrats saying that no one is above the law and the Republicans branding it political. Come November, though, voters will be heading back to the polls for the midterm elections. And there are murmurs that this action by the FBI could, in fact, have actually boosted support for Donald Trump. That was Chichi Azundo, who was in Florida. It is 23 to 6 right now. White bait, the veal of the fish world. Uh, but they're going to have a shorter season in New Zealand this year. The Department of Conservation says it's good for the white bait, and in particular their numbers. Uh, I spoke to the DO's to, to Doc's white bait fishery manager, Nick Moody, about the changes. The new season dates will help to reduce fishing pressure, especially on the most threatened species of white bait and assure the white baiting season is the same in both the North and South Islands. Right. So it's it's quite short. What are, tell us what it is now and then give us an idea of what it used to be. <laughs> now the season is from the 1st of September to the 30th of October. Yeah. And it used to go for most of the country from the 15th of August to the 30th of November, uh, except on the West Coast where it was 1st of September to the 14th of November. So it's quite a change for people, eh? Because, you know, a lot of people set their calendar for it. They really, really look forward to this. They've they've got their spots that they love, you know, that they jealously guard and that, and that as well. It's, it, it's quite hard. How's the message been getting it out to these people? And have you heard back from anyone? Yeah, that's right. It is a much-loved Kiwi tradition. And uh, these changes were the result of several years of engagement and consultation right around the country with over uh, 12,000 people. So... Uh, they've been developed with a lot of feedback from white baiters. Do they buy into it when you say to them, look, we, we you know, we just, it, I mean, it's it's basically restocking the fish, is it? Yeah, that's it. Uh, because four of the six species of white bait are now classified as threatened or at risk of extinction. And uh, nobody wants to see white bait go extinct. So we have made these changes to ensure that our grandchildren can still go white baiting and enjoy this great Kiwi tradition. Nick, do you know why those species aren't reproducing at a quick enough rate? Whitebait face a range of threats and pressures, loss of habitat, poor water quality, barriers to the upstream migration, as well as fishing pressure. See, if I think that, I think poor water quality, I'm thinking like maybe there might be some farming runoff in there, there might be some factory runoff too. Am, am, I, in, am I in the right ballpark here? And, and what stops fish from getting upstream? Yeah, you're in the right ballpark. I think we all understand that our freshwater ecosystems are facing some real challenges in um, Aotearoa, New Zealand. And unfortunately, whitebait are affected by that as much as any other species. Uh, those barriers upstream, if you've got a small stream going under a road through a pipe 
and then that pipe sort of pops out into the air on the other side, then when the fish are trying to go upstream, they can't jump up and get into the pipe. And so culverts like that are a huge barrier to the migration of the whitebait. Right. Have we, have we ever had catch limits in place for whitebait, you know, for this before? So there isn't a catch limit in terms of weight of fish. So we limit the catch through the season length and the fishing methods to ensure a sustainable harvest. Now, so shorter there, you'll be, I, I guess, the, the messages for people, you'll try and put as, as much messaging out, but what, there'll be patrols out to make sure there aren't people outside of those dates? That's right, yes, and people can also call the um, the dock uh, hotline, which is dock hot, if um, they see any fishing out of season, if, if somebody didn't get the message despite our, our best efforts here. Okay, now everyone thinks they do white bait fritters the best. Uh, Nick, give me give me the the Nick Moody secret special uh, white bait fritter recipe. <laughs> well, look, I had some amazing white bait from my mate Dean actually over on, over on the coast. <laughs> so there a couple couple of weeks ago, and uh, you know he's given me permission to share his recipe very generously. Oh nice. Uh, he took the frozen white bait out of the freezer. He, he rinses it in a sort of a salty water to freshen them up and then cooks it with uh, just a minimum amount of flour, uh, egg, a pinch of baking powder, so you know maximum white bait, and those fritters, uh, they came out delicious. So, yeah, that's his secret recipe. <laughs> you can have his one. That's Doc's white bait fishery manager and food expert, Nick Moody. You can do better too in 01. It's 19 minutes to 6. I'm Nathan Rarity. You're listening to First Up here at RNZ National. So to come between now and 6, why 9 out of 10 businesses really want to raise salaries in the coming year? And Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson on UK Diplomacy, the Commonwealth Games and the Uffendale fiasco affecting national. The professionals of Morning Report are up after 6... And a quick preview of the flagship news programme this morning. It's Guy Nesbitt who's with me. Kia ora, Guy. How are you? Kia ora. I'm very well, thanks. Uh, you're much of a flyer at the moment, Nathan, because Air New Zealand is going to be reducing uh, its number of flights. It's saying that it's going to operate at about 90% of its pre-COVID capacity for the next six months. So that does include that um, you know busy summer holiday period. We're going to be speaking to the Chief Executive, Greg Foran, this morning. They're promising to um, reduce disruption for travellers, but it will mean reducing the number of flights and having fewer staff on standby to cover illnesses. Obviously a lot of people being knocked out with COVID. Whenever I'm on the pencil, I'm always going to Hawke's Bay and and I think that's the one where when you live in a region like that, you're like, oh, that means they're going to cut our flights. That's the one, right? I think is people suspect that it's that and and the regionals because they're hard to get to. Yeah, and there's that dreaded thing that comes over the intercom, isn't it? That um, that, a technical problem. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, or a mechanical issue. But we'll be talking to Greg Foran about that this morning. Uh, The Sam Uffendell scandal continues. We're going to be talking to a a legal expert, Andrew Geddes, about just how this whole inquiry is going to work with Mm. this QC coming in and what actual powers she will have to determine actually who did what. Uh, So we'll be looking at that. We're also looking at Google and its claim that it will offer New Zealanders complete control over its own data. There's some scepticism about that. And Donald Trump um, in the the news again, uh, the former president refusing to answer questions at a New York fraud investigation hearing. So a lot of uh, knives out for Trump at the moment and his supporters see it as politically motivated. So it's a a bit of a tinderbox there. an interesting one, isn't it? Sounds like a great show. Thank you very much, uh, Guy and Espinar, who's up after six. Well, look, a recent survey. <clears throat> this is an amazing one. 
A recent survey by Hayes Recruitment shows that nearly 90% of businesses intend to raise salaries in the coming year. But will they be able to meet uh, employee expectations? What can bosses do to prepare for remuneration discussions? To answer that question, we have with us the Chief Executive of Hayes Recruitment, Chris O'Reilly. Kia ora, Chris. Moreno, Nathan. Actually, Chris O'Reilly from uh, Ask Your Team. Oh, right, sorry. Hey, um... Chris, um, nine out of ten businesses want to give staff a raise? Really? Well, I, I don't think they have any choice. Uh, they need to be doing something. The job market is just so competitive at the moment, either within industries and between industries. Uh, really, the power sitting with the employees. So uh, the, the challenge is that a lot of organisations just don't have the, the revenue or profitability to give employees what they feel that they want at the minute. So really, really challenging times. Chris, I, I've been noticing this just recently in the last few months, and I thought, I can't remember a time in my life uh, where the power seemed to be more on the labour side of things as opposed to the employer side of things. Is, is that, you know, you, you're seeing that as well? Yeah, we're seeing that. We've got hundreds of businesses uh, at Ask Your Team that uh, we, we're obviously very close touch with, but they're saying exactly the same things. And I'm, 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 I'm really old. I'm in my late fifties and been in leadership roles for a number of years. And I, I agree with you, Nathan. Uh, and, but that's an exciting opportunity for the really good employers and the really good organisations to say, hey, what can we do differently? How do we make a difference? How do we make ourselves more attractive than the, the business down the road? Yeah, it, it is an interesting one, isn't it? And now the fight is on. I guess with the unemployment figures being so low too, does that mean that if you are a premium staff or if you're very, very good at your job, you've got a way bigger bargaining chip? Yeah, look, it's it's old-fashioned economics, supply and demand, and you're absolutely on the money with that, Nathan. Yep. Okay. So now employers are going to have to, I guess, compete. If they're saying, hey, things are tight for us as well, transport costs are up, power prices are up, we, we can't throw the money at you, what sort of uh, alternatives have they got? Yeah, I think the first thing is, uh, it comes down to relationships and trust. I think those organisations, those leaders and those businesses need to share that with people. That, hey, look, we're doing it tough, but hey, here's some other opportunities. Uh, is, it, is it around additional leave? It might be a four-day week, four week or a four-and-a-half-day week. Uh, can we look at bonuses for key projects or, or, or achievement of goals, stretch targets and goals? Can we give you more study? Uh, can we give you time off for secondment? The, uh, the, the main thing, though, I think so many employees are wanting, uh, and particularly the, generate, the, the Gen Zers and things, they want more flexibility. They want more work-life balance, or other, other people say they want more balance in their life. So is it, is it giving people time off to see the kids play, play sport? Is it giving people time off to look at training for a particular uh, an event or interest that they're, they're, they're working with? The key is that it's different for everyone. And one of the mistakes I think uh, employers make is, hey, we're going to do this blanket one size fits all. What you've got to do is be close, have individual conversations with everyone in your organisation and find out what's important to them. And that'll give you some opportunities around that flexibility. Yeah. Um, Chris, thank you very much for your time, sir. There is the CEO and co-founder of uh, Ask Your Team. That's Chris O'Reilly.
Uh, it is uh, coming up to six o'clock now. Uh, this week's Kantar One News poll shows that Labour and National have dropped in popularity, but an increase in support for ACT means National could form a government next election. Any celebration in the National camp would have been uh, pretty short-lived, actually, thanks to the news story and then another news story about MP Sam Uffendale's violent past. I spoke to Minister Grant Robertson about it, but we started off first just asking him to give me a quick recap of his trip to the UK. Yeah, it was it was a great trip. It was interesting to go and visit both France and also uh, the UK. A um, lot of similar and uh, problems and issues were dis- I discussed. You know, inflation, massive issue in the UK. The while I was there, the, and I met with the governor of the Bank of England, and he subsequently made an announcement where they lifted their official cash rate, but also projected that inflation would go over thirteen percent in the UK by the end of the year. That's driven in, in large part there by energy health energy bills, um, which, you know, fortunately mm. for New Zealand, because of our renewable energy, we're not so reliant on gas. But real pressures there in France, you know, similar issues to New Zealand in terms of fuel and food with inflation. But, you know, everyone's still dealing with the parts of COVID, but now having um, this inflation uh, spike on top of it. So interesting to discuss different approaches and what can be done there uh, and interesting to catch up with some New Zealand businesses in the UK, see how they were going, and also the the, the various people who helped um, lend money to the country, and I met with them and discussed you know, our program going forward from here. So yeah, good, really good to be able to get out there and do that, but then even better, it has to be said, Nathan, to then go up to Birmingham um, and have um, four days up there with the with the New Zealand team and what was just an exceptional Commonwealth Games 49 medals 20 gold medals the most we've ever had some stunning performances Aaron Gate standing out with his four medals but but equally you know the likes of Joelle King becoming New Zealand's most decorated female Commonwealth Games athlete Um, Elise Andrews, Lewis Clearbert both getting three medals and then you know towards the end I would actually was just on my way back and I just had a little feeling that we might tip over England in the in the women's T20 cricket and we did spectacularly felt so good for that team, we've had a really tough time um, of late and the netball coming through as well with the bronze, just so many fantastic moments, great games Birmingham deserve to be congratulated they, they put on a really well organised event and yeah I, I hope people back home felt really proud because being there, I felt incredibly proud of our team. I was thinking about this generation of athlete, and I thought I actually thought it during the last Winter Games. And I do you remember about I think wasn't it about ten years ago? Maybe it wasn't quite ten years ago, but there was around about there where the philosophy changed of rather than gold, 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 it was participation or just you know having kids discover what sports they like. And I'm wondering if this generation that's come through now that I remember all the old sports farts that I used to work with were like, no, you know, you've got to run them up hills all the time. It it seems to me that these ones are coming through and now we're seeing, you know, the, what do you call it, seeing it come to fruition. Yeah, it does does feel a bit like that. And and that focus is something as sports minister I've tried to carry on. And one of the programs I'm really pleased about is a program called Balance is Better, where the sort of some of our biggest sporting organisations have got together and encourage young people not to specialise too early, Mm. you know, to get the experience of playing a range of sports. And actually, I was talking about that program with my English Minister of Sport counterpart, and he was really interested in in having a look at it because I think we're all aware that if people do specialise too early, if we put too much pressure on too early, 
we're going to put um, some of our athletes off. And, yes, some tremendous young athletes coming through. I mean, massive highlight for me was seeing Sam Tanner, who's who's only 21, run the second fastest ever 1,500 metres by a New Zealander. And he was, I don't know if you saw the interview, but he was hilarious. He could describe himself as the happiest sixth-place getter ever <laughs> um, because he'd run a personal best by about three seconds. And I just saw a range of athletes around that age who are clearly going to be stars of the future. And the Com Games is kind of quite a different from the Olympics and that you go to the Olympics and it's pretty clear who's going to finish in the top four. It might just be the order. The Commonwealth Games is this habit of just chucking up people who, who surprise and saw that a bit in the pool and, and on the track and yeah, and field events. Just, just fantastic. Yeah. Okay. That was good. You get home and Kantar one news poll comes out. You're sliding huge jump for acts. Does, does that worry you? I think, you know, I, I always tend to be pretty careful with polls. Um, you know, it's a cliche, but, you know, there is only really one poll that counts, the one that happens every three years um, at the general election. But, look, we've been through a very difficult, and we are in a very difficult winter in New Zealand. People are literally sick and tired with COVID. Um, we've got these big boosts in the cost of living, you know, where people are struggling to be able to afford um, the things that they need, and we're trying to help out with that. And so I feel like there is a bit of the winter blues going on for the country as a whole and that's inevitably going to affect um, uh, affect the government but and I, I would say that was also a common theme when I was travelling around that incumbent governments um, find it difficult when when things like the cost of living um, start to rise yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic I think that New Zealand's got a lot going for it the borders are open now um, talking to a lot of people in the northern hemisphere are looking to come here as tourists um, we've got good plans around the economy for investing in you know, new jobs and in, and in training for people and in infrastructure. And so, yep, it's it's been a challenging time, but I'm pretty confident that, you know, the New Zealand economy is resilient and I think we've got a good plan and, and that'll come to fruition in terms of the, the big poll next year. Big uh, topic of the week, Tauranga MP Sam uh, Uffendel's past, you know, admitted when in, beat up a smaller kid at King's, was, was asked to leave the school, said he might have punched a few other people and then more reports have come out of uh, terrorising flatmates. Does he stay as a Labour MP after this? Oh, look, this is an issue that National have to resolve, and, and each party's got their own processes and rules for that. These are these are very serious mm. um, allegations, and in some cases, but the, not just the same for a Labour MP. Would they? Would they? Yeah, look, them? our process would be that would be up to the leader. But these, as I say, these are serious allegations and serious situations, and I think they'd be looked at, you know, very seriously by a leader. And and our system, we do run a range of checks on potential candidates. Um, people have to disclose things but also, you know, their online history and so on is always looked at as you would expect um, with with almost any any job um, that we have. Um, and we do normally ask people to be, you know, a, a member for at least a year. That allows us to get to know people a little bit. But obviously no vetting system is perfect. But, you know, the Prime Minister's shown in the past that she's not been prepared to put up with, um, you know, behaviour that, that, that steps outside of the bounds we would expect of good behaviour. And so I can't say for sure what it would be, but I, I think these are pretty serious issues that, that need to be dealt with. Do you, what's the difference in your uh, way of selecting candidates to, to nationals? Do you do them differently? Slightly, and this is probably getting a little bit technical, but um, the, the the system here in, in the Labour Party is that in every selection there are at least three people representing our governing body, our New Zealand Council. 
and then depending on the size of the of the number of members who are in a particular area, they can represent up to four votes. Sometimes it's only three, sometimes it's only two. The distinction, as I understand it, with national is that once a set of candidates have been kind of pre-approved by the board of the national party, it's then entirely up to the local members um, who gets chosen. So, so that's one substantive um, difference. I'm not sure about all of the background checks and mm-hmm. so forth and so on. Um, as I understand it from what I've read in the media, um, some of what um, Mr Avondale has done was known, but it's all a bit murky, isn't it? And ultimately, Christopher Luxon's got to deal with those issues and deal with, with what he wants to do with um, Mr Uffendale. Uh Finally, if the All Blacks lose uh, this weekend again, new coach? Yeah, and this is the one where the Minister of Sport again says, I've got my own views personally, but I think <laughs> as Minister, I, I need to be careful. I'll tell you what, I think all New Zealanders, I hope anyway, would want to see the All Blacks win, um, regardless of issues to do with the coach. Um, these are a group of players who, you know, who are representing New Zealand. And so I didn't get to see the game because I was in transit, but um, really looking forward to, to getting up and watching this one and hoping that they get up. Ultimately, the, those decisions will be taken by by uh, New Zealand rugby. And yeah, Grant Robertson, rugby fan, can <laughs> will have his views and the Minister of Sport will just keep supporting the All Blacks. Thank you very much. Uh, finally this morning, some of your feedback. Carl talking about Domino's failing in Italy. Domino's failed in Italy because they couldn't earn a crust. I won't, it won't be the last to go bankrupt, likely to be a domino effect. Very good, thank you very much. Ellie says, uh, Ellie says, Starbucks on Pottsby Road was actually hugely successful. It lasted five years. Uh, even hosted local mums and bubs coffee mornings. There we go. Uh, get in touch with us whenever you like. Morning Reporters next with Guy and Corin. From all of us here at First Up, have a wonderful day. We'll be back in your ears. A pawpaw.